Um, why don't we go ahead and open our Bibles, if you would, to the book of First Peter, chapter 1. If you guys don't have Bibles, we have some ushers, I'm sure, that are going to uh, be ready to hand out Bibles to you guys. We've been in a series going through the book of First Peter, making our way through this great book, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's kind of the way in which we typically do things. Um, last week, we jumped into uh, looking at this book again after the season of Lent and the time of Easter and focusing on Jesus' death and resurrection and whatnot. So we're back into this great book. Um, what I would like to do right now is I want to kind of read uh, a section that we read last week. It's a little bit lengthy. It's not too long. It's not going to take us too long, but I think it helps us to re-engage with the text. So if you guys wouldn't mind me having you stand one more time, I'm going to read out loud. You guys can follow along. It's First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 22. It's kind of a part of a larger whole section, and uh, we'll get to work looking at this text. So it says this in verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in these last times. And for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and give him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22, having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And this is the word of God. Let me pray, then you can grab a seat. Jesus, thank you for our time here. We pray now that you would open our hearts to all that you have to speak to us. God, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are quick to say yes, Lord, to you and all your ways. And so we pray for the empowerment of your Holy Spirit to be able to, to, to do these things in a way, God, that brings glory to you and yet brings blessing to others. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all grab a seat? So last week we, uh, we jumped into this section. We looked at kind of the first part. A little bit of it was review. Um, but one of the things uh, we, that, I, that I actually made a reference to was um, sort of the corporate culture in terms of large Fortune 500 companies. There's a handful of them that have, I don't know if they've like received rewards, but they've definitely received accolades and recognition for having a very good corporate culture. Of those were like REI, Twitter, Starbucks. And one of the things that we pointed out was that within the corporate culture of each of these larger, massive corporations is a program that they have put in place to be able to make sure that as they receive new employees, that those employees learn kind of the corporate culture of that particular uh I don't know, business or whatever prototype of a business, so that within that corporate culture, 
what is being put forth is something that's going to be uh, great, not only encouragement to those that are going to be buying, but also those that work there as well. That's the big idea. And one of the things I pointed out last week was this is not too dissimilar from how Christianity is. This is, I think, what Peter's saying is that those that are in Jesus, those that belong to Christ, are part of a brand new nature that God has brought them into. And the word corporate could just simply means corporeal or bodily. So a bodily culture. What's the bodily culture of Christians? Um, I think if you were to kind of do like a, um, I don't know, a poll, just asking random people, what do you think Christianity is all about? Depending upon who you ask, you need a variety of answers. But I think probably if you were to ask it in light of and in line with the general consensus of how culture views it, let's say, for example, Bart Simpson, the Simpsons, and or South Park, how do those incredibly prophetic voices of our modern culture view things like Christianity? I would probably argue to say that most of the most cases, it's just viewed as a joke. It's viewed as a joke. Why? And I think probably the answer would come back to, because a lot of times Christians who represent Christianity don't embody an accurate picture of what Christianity is. Would, would you agree with that? So let me make this personal so that rather than us becoming the critiques that look at other people and say, yeah, they, they never do it right. Let's look at yourself. How often do you misrepresent Jesus? I think we're honest. We all do it often, right? Some of you just even driving here, right? You're weaving in and out of traffic, cutting people off. I got to get to church because I'm late. And the point that I'm making is that we've, we all do this. It's not just something for somebody else. All of us are, are part of this. And what I think Peter's suggesting is that when we embody the, the nature of Christianity, there's a certain way in which we will look. When we don't, what we will do is we will send out messages of confusion. And people who maybe don't know Jesus, who don't follow God, who don't respect or honor God, they look at the mixed messages or mixed messaging from Christians, and it's very possible for them to get confused. Just like maybe you have been confused by others, by the message that they send forth from their lives. So what I'm suggesting is that what Peter is saying is that those that are in Jesus, those that belong to God, They've been brought into a new way of living their life that's distinct or different from the old way. So what we began to look at last week, and again, we'll hopefully try to finish it this week. If not, we'll continue to next week and we'll be done with this little section here, is this bigger idea of what are some of the ways in which Christians are to embody? What does this look like? And we point out there's basically four things that Peter says. So we kind of stem forth from, I think it's around verse 18, where he says, you were rescued or saved, which we'll look at more in depth in just a moment, from the futility of your former lifestyle. And so what Peter wants to suggest is that before we came to know Jesus, our lives were headed in a direction of just futility. Now, that shouldn't be shocking to us, but the point that he's making is that, look, you could make an absolute, quote-unquote, success of your life in this life right now. But nobody who dies brings their wealth with them to the grave. I mean, you could. Uh, Egyptians tried, but it's unsuccessful. Only to be left around for grave robbers, right, in movies years and years later. But the point that I would make is that these things don't necessarily translate over into wealth in the next life. In other words, you could have everything you want in this life and build an empire in this life, but that doesn't translate over into what happens after you die. 
And what Peter's saying is that we could build massive amounts of wealth and goodness and abundance and productivity in this life, but at the end of the day, we can't take it with us into anything in the future. So what he's suggesting is that that's just futile. It's a futile mindset that just simply says build now because at some point in the future, it translates over into nothing. It's literally an empire of dirt. So wink, wink at a Johnny Cash remake of an old song. But the point that I would make is this, is the idea is that it's all futility. It's what he's suggesting. And what I wanted to do is I want to kind of take that negative term futility and turn around in more of a positive. So what does a fulfilled life look like? Or to put it another way, what does a life that is living and abiding according to the corporate culture of the kingdom of God look like? So this is what Peter says. So last week we looked at this passage where it says in verse I don't know, 13, 14, he says that there's at least four things that describe or identify those who live and are living currently a fulfilled life. If you want to put it into another way, these are four characteristic traits that will identify the corporate culture of those that belong to Jesus. Number one, it is identified by people who hope in God. So people that are identified by the kingdom of God, they have radical hope in God. It's not going to be always consistent at all times. There's going to be moments where we have despair. There's going to be moments where we find ourselves like taken out, buckled in fetal position by way of depression and difficulty and hardship. That happens. But what he's saying is that Christians are those that from that fetal position of despair are able by God's strength to reclaim territory that was once taken by the evil one, by despair, by recapturing a sense of who God is, repositions our heart into a place of hope. So number one, Christians are those that have hope in God. Number two, they are people that are holy. Christians that identify or embody the corporate culture of God's kingdom are a people that are holy. Now, I'm just going to read this, and then we're going to go on to the next one, because Again, some of this, like I mentioned last week, is by way of review, and this is still in the review state. Um, in fact, if you want to hear a good message, just go to our website. Connor Berry actually taught on this particular passage on Be Holy. I'm just going to give simple credit to this and recognize. So I'm going to read it, verse 14, and then we'll move on to the very next one. It says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So listen to how he describes this again. So he says, those that embody the corporate nature, the corporate culture of the kingdom of God, they're holy people. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think of the phrase or the, or the term holy. I don't know if you even think of yourself as holy. In fact, I think if we're really honest, like if I were to ask, hey, are you holy? Most of us would be like, no, no, not at all. But again, maybe it's because our understanding of what the word holy is, is in, inaccurate or incorrect. So this is where, again, as we read the Bible, it's helpful to adopt a biblical perspective as to what the word holy means. Now, listen to how he describes this. He says, be holy in all your conduct. Then he goes on to say next in verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So listen to what he gets, says again. Be holy in your conduct. Be holy for God is holy. So conduct and, and God are, are synchronized. If you want to think of it this way, holiness really is just simply living in a lifestyle that's consistent with the way that God created the world. 
really what it means. So what's the default of human beings? It's to not live in consistency with the way God has created the world. We live in a way that's more consistent with our own appetites, our own desires, our own longings. I'll talk more about that in two seconds. John Calvin once said this. He says, true knowledge of God is actually born out of obedience. You want to know God? Obey what little bit of revelation you've been given. It starts there. What has God shown you about yourself, about about himself, about his ways? Are there certain things in your life right now that God may be saying, obey me, trust me, take a step in that direction? And again, I, I would say, again, the idea that John Calvin is suggesting is that every bit of obedience that we give to God will lead to another bit of deeper revelation of who God is. True knowledge of God is born out of obedience. What are those areas of obedience? And as you are on that path, that will lead to a life of reorienting your ways back into the way that God designed you. And that is what we would describe as holiness. So again, I would even add Jesus. Was Jesus holy? Yes. How did Jesus live his life? In disobedience to God? No, never, always, always in obedience to God. So therefore, Jesus was the most holy of all people. Um, Was Jesus difficult to relate to or connect with? No, little kids ran up to Jesus and wanted to hang out with Jesus. People that were in the margins loved Jesus. Modern people loved Jesus. We might not necessarily love his message, but we love at least what we think we think about Jesus. The point that I make is this, that Jesus is the most holiest man that has ever lived. And yet he was in alignment with the ways of God. This is what Peter's summoning us, calling us to embody. This is the corporate culture of God's kingdom. So thirdly, I want to jump back into the, now we're actually beginning to make headway into the text. So I want to take a look at thirdly, number three is that the third step to a fulfilled life is not only hoping in God, not only those who are holy, but those who honor God. I'm going to read the passage and then I'll backtrack. Verse 17, he says this, and if you call upon him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, he says to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways that you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, that's a massive mouthful. I hope that unpack it for you a little bit, all right? So if you're kind of like, I totally got lost after like the third sentence, that's okay, because there's a lot of sentences there, and some of them are kind of run on. So let's break it down a little bit. I want to, first of all, take a look at a paradigm. I want to create sort of a pattern for you. And I've talked about this before, but for those of you that might be unfamiliar with it, it's what's described as the indicative imperative pattern or indicative imperative uh, paradigm. What I mean by that is an indicative is something that Scripture describes as something that is true of you based upon something that God has declared or that God has done. So that's what an indicative. An imperative is something that's summoned of you. Something that you're being invited to live according to in light of this indicative. Does that make sense? So that's what we would call the indicative imperative paradigm. So I want to use that paradigm to take a look at this particular passage here. And hopefully that will help kind of create a little bit of a, um, uh, I don't know, 
measurement to take a look at this a little bit easier. So I want to, first of all, take a look at the two major uh, imperatives that are here in the, or I'm sorry, the indicatives that are within this paradigm here. Number one, first indicative is he describes God as being a father. Listen to how he says this, that he says a father who judges impartially. So what he's describing is that you have a father. This is who God is. God is not an angry landlord who's looking for an opportunity to oust you onto the street. God is a father. But then he goes on to describe something about the fatherhoodness or the fatherliness about who God is. He says he is a father who judges impartially. This is really good news, by the way, because... If any of you are parents or have been parents before, you know that there's, there's a tendency, especially when your kids can get older, that they can accuse you of. You don't judge according to righteousness. You're showing favoritism towards older sibling or younger sibling. Parents, have you ever had that happen to you? Like, mom, you know, kids, they're just, they, they become your accusers, right? If you got young kids, that has not quite yet happened. It'll happen the older your kids get. Have you as a child ever felt your mom and dad have been not fair in treating you instead they treated your sibling with you know greater fairness than they treated you and what i think peter's suggesting is that this is not how god is god never ever ever judges with impartiality he always judges with fairness god is therefore a just fair god this is really good news especially when we live in a world filled with injustices where we feel like we're getting the raw and the stick when we have grievances that have been nurtured or uh, nursed because of feeling like we have not been seen or been observed or we've been shoved off in the margins or our story doesn't matter to somebody or maybe the culture at large or maybe where we live, the city or the city magistrates or our government or whoever or some sort of system that's supposed to be set in place to take care of people like us, but it's not. It's failing to see us. That can become really troublesome. And what Peter's saying is that you, who are in Jesus, have a father that judges without impartiality. He sees you. He sees what you've gone through. He knows not only the injustices and the hardships and the challenges and difficulties that you face. He also knows your heart and how you've tried to adjust and accommodate and deal with those things. He sees you. This is extremely good news. So this is what he says in terms of the first indicative. Again, if you call upon him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, uh, I'm going to skip ahead to the next little uh, indicative. Uh, you can jump on down to verse 18 through 22, and I'll take each one of these, and hopefully it'll break it down. It'll make a little bit more sense than just reading through it as I did earlier. This is the second indicative. Then he goes on to say, you were ransomed. or Some of your Bible translations might say redeemed or rescued. Listen to how he says this in verses 18 through uh, onward. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So let's break this down. So what he says by way of the second indicative is that what you will be summoned to do hinges, pivots upon these two things. So number one, again, you have a father who judges all things with impartiality. Number two, you have a God who has ransomed you, rescued you. From what? Here's what he says. He's ransomed you or rescued you from your futile ways that you inherited from your fathers. He describes the traditions. So this is very likely he's referring to those that might be religious 
So have you ever maybe grown up in a family that had a lot of rich religious traditions? Um, this is no doubt unfamiliar. This is, or this is no doubt would have been familiar territory to the ancient world. Say, for example, Jews. They had all sorts of traditions. But I think what he's suggesting is that, you know, we all inherit these traditions from our forefathers. Not only do we inherit traditions, we also inherit sins. We inherit sins. And here's what I think he's saying, is that now in Jesus, you have been given a new life. There's a new corporate culture that you embody that looks to be in alignment with having hope in God. It looks to be in alignment with having holiness, whereby you live in a way that's consistent with the way that God is. But thirdly, it looks like what he describes, we'll say in just a second, honoring God. But point is, in terms of this indicative, is that you've been ransomed, rescued, purchased by God because he loves you. Again, this is good news because what this means is that you are not a slave to the traditions or sins or activities or bad habits of your forefathers or your mom and dad or your grandparents. The fact is, the older you get, the more you begin to realize that some of the bad habits you have in your life, you actually picked up from your mom and dad. I was totally clueless as a young parent. And as my kids get older, got older, I begin to realize like, oh my gosh, some of the bad attitudes that they have and the grumpiness and the irritability, oh my gosh, that's like, that's so familiar because I know exactly where that came from. My wife, I'm just kidding, came from me. Just kidding. The point that I make is that we have this tendency to pass these things on to our loved ones. They inherit, they adopt, but again, In Jesus, there's a new possibility for a new beginning. And this is why I think Peter's suggesting, is that in and by way of what God has done, this is the indicative that God has brought forth, that God has done something for us that is so profound, so great, that we are no longer defined by that. And he goes on to say that you were ransomed, um, not with silver or gold, Again, if you were to go back in the ancient Roman world, what was some of the most valuable stuff that you can find? Silver or gold. And he's, so, so he's, in today's world, it might be like, you weren't ransomed with Bitcoin or titanium or whatever. I mean, whatever thing of value that we have in our world today or a house in San Luis Obispo, you were ransomed by the blood of Jesus. And again, this is Old Testament terminology. It's not that this red droplet of Jesus' blood is magical, has some sort of magical. That's not at all what he's suggesting. It's that the blood of Jesus, the fact that Jesus died for you. In other words, he incurred something of our brokenness in an exchange gave to us something of his wholeness. That's his whole point. You've been ransomed. This is the indicative that God has done something for you on your behalf. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. God acted in grace on your behalf. Listen to how Zechariah describes this. It's very possible that Peter, as he's writing this, he may be even thinking about this, but Zechariah has this incredible passage. It's this uh, moment where the prophet Zechariah has his vision. God shows him some things. In Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, it says, Then God showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan was standing at the right hand to accuse him. Then the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. And then the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this the brand that was plucked from the fire? This language that God describes, he says, this guy Joshua, yes, he may have some bad stuff on him, but God says, he is somebody that I have rescued. He was a brand 
Think of sitting around a campfire and you see a piece of wood that's right there and it's glowing, but it's not completely consumed yet. That's a brand plucked from the fire. You pull it out and it's no longer going to be consumed. He's suggesting that this is what I did with Joshua, this high priest. I plucked him from the fire. No longer will he fully be consumed. I, God, have rescued, ransomed, stepped in and took him out of this place of brokenness. This is what the gospel describes. This is what the good news is all about. God steps into our lives and does something, this indicative that indicates what God has done for us on our behalf. That being said, what is the imperative? And this is where I want to get into this, and I'll actually wrap it up with some just final thoughts here. The imperative, listen to what he says in 17, the second part of uh, verse 17. He says, therefore, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So again, based upon the first indicative and the second indicative, sandwiched in between those two is this imperative, this idea, here's what I want you to do. Because God has ransomed you, because God has rescued you, because God is an impartial father who loves you, cares for you, therefore, conduct your life in a way of fear. This might seem kind of odd because, again, in our culture, we tend to think of like, are we to live in terror of God? That's not the idea. The word fear can mean that for sure. There's occasions where that particular Greek word, phobos, actually can be translated as terror or fear, like to the point where you are absolutely, utterly terrified. So it can mean that. But it could also mean a range of emotions that have to do with like honor and reverence and recognition, respect. To maybe put it into a different way, if you were to think of it this way, I think Peter, no doubt, was probably writing, and uh, Peter had an incident that took place earlier in his Christian experience. Um, the book of Acts chapter 5, I'll just read a couple passages right there. Acts chapter 5, verse 5, and then verses 10 through 11. There was an incident that took place in the early church. Um, There's a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. And again, it's, it's one of those crazy circumstances in the early part of the church where these two people, they lied. And therefore, they were held accountable to their lie. And it's, again, it's one of the shocking moments in the early church. But Peter are, is recounting this. He's at kind of ground zero of this event. He's the main guy that's kind of responsible of working with pastoring these two people. And this is what it says in verse 5. Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and died. And then it says, great phobos, great fear came upon all of them that heard these things. Verse 10, skipping on down, it says, and then great fear came upon all the church and upon all as many as heard these things. Then she, Sapphira, she fell down straightway at his feet and she also died and they buried her with her husband. So again, like I said, without going into too lengthy of a detail, both of this, this couple, they died and incredible fear came upon. What do you think that fear would have created? It would have created a sense of like, oh my gosh, let's not mess around with God. We might use the word reverence. Let's have a sense of respect and reverence towards the ways of God. We live in a culture filled with irreverence. In fact, I, I think it'd be safe to say that the entire media industry, movie industry, music industry is filled with irreverence. We're feasting upon irreverence all the time. You can become a TikTok influencer based upon entirely a platform of irreverence. This dismantling anything having to do with Jesus or Christianity or the church. 
Which, by the way, attacking the church is, is a really easy target. It's really easy. It's filled with a bunch of sinful people, just like you and I, who make mistakes all the time. But the point of the matter is, is that we live in a culture where irreverence sells. It promotes. There's an easy audience for irreverence. And what I'm suggesting is that what Peter's saying is to adopt a mindset that's the exact opposite of irreverence. Because Jesus rescued you, because God is a father who will judge with impartiality, conduct yourself in a way of incredible honor and reverence towards God. Which I want to end with a brief head nod to an incident that took place between within our culture, between Sigmund Freud, another guy by the name of lesser known name, by the name of Wilhelm Reich, and I'll finish with a little thought upon a guy named Herbert Marcuse, which you're like, where is he going with all this? I'll tell you. So back in the 50s, uh, Sigmund Freud's theories became extremely popular. And in short, the big idea basically went something like this, is that Sigmund Freud had this thought that beneath all humans was this hidden irrational self that ultimately needed to be controlled for the good of individuals as well as for the stability of the larger society at whole. Uh, a little bit later, there's a guy by the name of Wilhelm Reich. Wilhelm Reich was a student of Freud that basically believed and taught the exact opposite. That for a human being to subdue or suppress that primal instinct would be destruction for a culture and society and for the individual. So therefore, Wilhelm Reich came along and says, no, 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 what we need to do is unleash that self to do whatever that self wants to unleash those primal urges, to live into those primal urges, to let those primal urges have a full, complete consumption of who we are as human beings. So why does that matter? That leads to around the 60s, a guy by the name of Herbert Marcuse. That was one that was deeply influenced by a lot of the psychology of the day and was definitely influenced by Wilhelm Reich. One of the things that he did by way of training and teaching an entire generation of students was to create this notion, this idea that this is exactly what needs to be done. The inner primal urges needs to be unleashed. In fact, they had a cultural expression that came forth from that. And this was the cultural expression. There is a policeman inside our heads. He must be destroyed. Let me repeat that. There is a policeman inside of our heads. He must be destroyed. Why is that important? Here's why. This, friends, is the culture that we live in right now. You might not know that. Because you might not be familiar with Wilhelm Reich or Herbert Marcuse or the revolts that took place that led into this. This is the culture that you and I are steeped in. There's a policeman inside of our head. He must be destroyed. What I'm suggesting to you, this is the exact opposite of fear the Lord. We have a choice to be swept up by the culture and the narrative that's constantly telling us, live this way, follow this way, crush, destroy the policeman inside your head that's saying, don't do that, suppress that, control that. Instead, to adopt a different way of being human that says, I will, I will honor God and fear him. And as we close, I'm going to read a couple of passages out of the book of Proverbs. So Nick will come on down. And as he's coming down, getting ready, just listen to these passages. And I'm done. Proverbs 14, verse 16 says this. The one who is wise 
fears the Lord and turns away from evil. But a fool is reckless and careless. Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Cynicism? Skepticism? If that becomes a pattern of life, will lead to calamity. Book of Philemon says this, my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For those that embody the corporate culture of Jesus, his kingdom, we adopt a mindset that says, oh, fear God. To finish with a final thought, I've been married for almost over a little over 30 years. I was going to say for almost 30 years. I just celebrated my 30th anniversary. But over 30 years I've been with my wife, married. Been with her longer than that. But the point that I would make is this, is that I love my wife. I don't live every day of my life thinking, well, what if I fail? What if I? But at the, there are moments where I realize if I fail, the most terrifying thing I could ever do is to look at my wife in her eyes realizing I did something that was so destructive to her. That terrorizes me. Not because I live in terror, but because I live in fear. Fear of offending the one I love. This is what it means to fear God. This is what the corporate culture of Jesus' people looks like. People that live in such a way that says, I do not want to dishonor the one who gave himself for me, who shed his blood for me, who called me by name, who knows me as a father, who will judge the world in a way that's filled with impartiality. 